All right, so here we go. Recap of Christ and Christmas. I'll bring you up to speed on where we are with this. Uh, turn to your neighbor and say, behold. Say, behold. Everybody's got to participate. There's a lot more of you than just that. So say, behold. Okay, so we're unpacking this word, behold. We'll put it up on the screen. We've been kind of unpacking this. I think we have it up, some of the definitions, if we can show them. If we don't, that's okay. All right, so uh, the good news is I have it here. All right, so behold, and it's in your sermon notes. So if you're following me on your sermon notes, you can look there. All right, uh, so behold, Hebrew is to observe or to lie in wait. I want you to picture this. There it is, lying and waiting, okay? You're observing. This is the Hebrew word that we would see for behold. Uh, the Greek word would be to be sure to see. Simply put, we've unpacked this, don't miss this. Don't miss this. And that's what we've been unpacking in this series Part one, we said, behold, the King of kings, the Lord of lords is born. Don't, don't miss this, that when you look at the Jesus and you look at the child, you think about Christmas season, don't miss this. The King of kings, the Lord of lords is born. And then last week, we talked about the Son of God and the Son of Man. If those words or those phrases have ever confused you, I encourage you to go back, listen to this talk. The Son of God, the Son of Man is born. He's both speaking to his humanity and to his divinity, and both of those are critical to understand. So we've talked about that. But today, I want to begin by making a statement, and it may shock you, and here's the statement I want you to know. The Bible is not the foundation of the Christian faith. I want to say it again. I know what you're about to, to do. You're about to walk out and say, that's heresy. <laughs> well, hold on a second. What do you? The Bible is not the foundation of the Christian faith, but don't jump out too fast. The Bible, as you know it, when you think about it, and you think about, you know, this, you know, genuine uh, pleather and, um, you know, all the, the pages and the maps, and you, you have a Bible in your hand or maybe you have an app on your phone, uh, that's not put together till three or 400 years after the resurrection or the death of Christ. So you think about that and you say, well, then how does Christianity spread? If there was no Bible as we know it today, how does it expand out? I want you to know that the Bible, and this is important for you to hear, the Bible did not invent Christianity. Christians don't believe that there's a God exists because Genesis 1 says so. Hear me out on that. Christians don't believe that Genesis, you know, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created, so therefore, the Bible says it, so it must be true. That is not. It is way better than that. Christians believe that God exists not because of Genesis 1-1, but because open your eyes and look around. It's, it's, it's open, just look around, right? And so you, you see this is so much more important. I think this is absolutely important. The order of the first century church received the Bible. We'll put this list up. This is how, if you were reading the New Testament, the book of Acts, this is how uh, the majority of believers in the beginning and the launching of the first, the first century church, this is how they would have seen it. They would have heard about the life of Jesus. Now pause. If you read through Acts chapter 1 or Acts chapter 2, uh, the, the first century church, this is how they would have discovered Christ. This is how they would have learned about Jesus. Hey, did you hear about Jesus? Oh, Jesus, yeah, he was born, he, was, he fulfilled this, and, he, and, he's, and they would talk about the life and the death. He put himself on the cross, and then he was resurrected from the grave. And this guy named John showed up, and he showed up, and he appeared. And they would have told the story over and over and over again. They would have found out about the life of Jesus first. And then, this is really important, they would have connected his life and the events of his life to what's called the Law and the Prophets, which you know as the Old Testament, 
They would have began to say, did you hear about Jesus, what he did? Yeah, no, he fulfilled it. Remember Isaiah back 700 years ago wrote this down? Daniel 500 years ago wrote this down? Remember Moses and Abraham and all this is leading him? King David, he's in the line. They would have begun to package together all the writings of the Old Testament, all the law and the prophets, and then pieced it together to the life of Christ. And then eventually, three or 400 years later, you get the Bible. But that's not how it is for most of us. In fact, for all of us. For most of us, that's probably not how it was presented. For many of us, or if you grew up in church, I didn't grow up necessarily in church all the time every Sunday, but, but you've probably heard this says. How many of you have ever heard this said, the Bible says it, so do it, you know, because the Bible says so, because the Bible told me so, right? That Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me. And so just the Bible says, and the Bible says, and the Bible says. But here's the problem with that. You start to question the Bible, you start to question faith. And if you start to question faith, then all of a sudden your faith begins to waver. So I want to invite you just to consider the foundation of faith. Let me ask you a question. This is not a trick question. I wanted to literally ask you this. What came first, your birth or your birth certificate? Okay, good. All right, just checking because I want you to see this, that Jesus is no different. So I want to invite you to see something a little differently today, okay? I want you to see the pages of this book that we call the Bible, right, his birth certificate. His birth came first, and that's so important to understand when you think about the foundation of your Christian faith. In fact, it will change everything when you understand this truth. We'll put it on the screens, this verse, 1 Corinthians 3.11. A guy named Paul writes the foundation of faith, and he says it clearly, for no one can lay any foundation other than one we already have. What's the foundation of the Christian faith? Jesus Christ. So write this in your notes. If you've taken notes, you have your notes in front of you. Write this in. Jesus is the foundation of the Christian faith. And the reason this matters is because the foundation determines the size, the strength, the durability of any building. We know how important the foundation is. And the same is true for the Christian faith. If you don't have the right foundation, your faith will waver. And I want you to have stronger faith. But it's got to be built on the right foundation. Here's why it matters. Put it up on the screen. The foundation of our faith determines the strength of our faith. Okay? The foundation of our faith determines the strength of our faith. And I want us to enter the new year with faith that is strong and firm. All right? But it's got to have the right foundation. So track with me a little bit, and I promise when we get to the end, it'll all wrap up nice and neat for you. First thing I want to do, though, is just unpack the definition of faith. And this will all make sense when we come together. We think about Christmas season. So important, okay? So the writer of Hebrews, this is how the writer of Hebrews defines faith. Okay, we talk about faith. This is what he says. He says, now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So three key words in there. Faith, confidence, and assurance. Let's unpack some of the definitions. Faith. Faith is this Greek word that simply means conviction of the truth. So I want to change some of our English language today. You think, do I have faith? I want to invite you to say this words. I have conviction. Say that. I have a conviction about something. See, it changes it instantaneously when you put in a different word. You see the word faith, meaning I have a deep conviction about something. 
Second word, I have confidence. I'm sorry, confidence is conviction. Both meaning conviction of the truth. I have a conviction. You see it again. You see assurance, meaning confidence, a foundation. And it's, I'm absolutely certain of this. When the writer of Hebrews writes this statement, writes this statement about the definition of what faith is, he is simply saying there is an absolute certainty in what I'm about to let you know. Faith is is, is an absolute certainty. I have zero question whether or not it's true. I have truth and I believe it to be true and I expect it to come to pass. I know it to be true. Yeah, last night when I was putting kids to bed and uh, two of the, my the kids, uh, two boys, have bunk beds. And I put my younger one, two years old, Nathan, up on the top bunk and kind of we're saying goodnight to them. And uh, he likes to get on the top bunk and stand and then he just jumps. And, um, and sometimes I don't even have my hands up, you know. He's just in, here we come. And he just jumps out. What's, what's Nathan revealing? Faith. Faith always has an object. Does that make sense? It's the act of it. It's so important that we understand this. Okay? Faith is choosing, write this in your notes, faith is choosing to believe and act upon what is true. Faith always has an object. If I were to grab a chair, and you're all sitting in a chair, and how many of you looked at the chair and question whether or not it would hold you. Probably none of you. But you looked at it and you thought, that's the object. And based on experience, based on a conviction in your mind, you sat down without questioning the chair that was in front of you. But we did put one chair, just so you know, it could be yours, that we <laughs> duct taped. So it, somewhere in the middle of this, for an illustration, you, it may not work out. Um, I'm kidding. But, I, but, but think about it. The faith is the act of you sitting in that chair. You were convicted and you were convinced that that chair could hold you and you sat down without question in it. Faith always has an object. What's the object of your faith? This is what we're going to just unpack here for a minute. So important, okay? With all that in mind, I'm going to read a statement to you and it is going to challenge your faith. Today, your faith is going to be challenged. And if you're a believer and a follower of Christ, it's still going to be challenged because it's going to gnaw at the very edges of your soul. It's going to pierce it and it's going to make you reconsider something I want you to consider today. All right. So with that in mind, understanding what faith is, it's the act of believing what is true and putting your hope in it, acting on it. I mean, this is so important. Watch this. Here's what I invite you to do. I invite you to put your faith in something that Jesus said. I want to just maybe even ask you, do you believe what Jesus said? Watch what he says. I'll give some context for you. On the night before his betrayal and death, Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for his departure. And this is going to be a dark season for his disciples. For his disciples, his followers in the flesh, these are rabbis and students. These are teachers and students, and they've been following him, watching him, living with him. They are fully invested in their rabbi. And he is about to let them know and continue to let them know that he's going to exit the premises and things are going to get tough for them. And he's going to do a 360. They're not even going to see it fully coming in the way that he knew it would come. And so Jesus, with that in mind, tells them this. John 14, a guy named John records this down for us. And it says, do not let your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. 
I just want you to anchor into the statements and the, and the statements that Jesus, the son of man, the human, right, is about to say about himself. He says, you believe in God. That is simply the Greek word that means to place confidence. You place confidence, and he's talking to Jews, of course. You place confidence there is a God. You place confidence in him. And then he says, put your confidence in me also. And he goes on to say further, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, now watch the statement, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. And you know the way. If you had a Bible, I would say circled the way. You know the way. You know the way to the place where I am going. To which Thomas, one of his followers, responds back and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know, and we highlight it up on the screen, the way? How can we know the way? How do we know the way? Jesus said, powerful statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Let me unpack these three I am statements. And many of us maybe have heard of these before, but if you haven't heard these before, Jesus makes a massive claim with these three statements. The first one he says, write it in your notes, the way. All through the Old Testament, remember I told you about Jesus being revealed first, and then you reach back into the law of the prophets, then the Bible is revealed. That order is so important because in this moment, you're experiencing it as they would experience it. Jesus says, I am the way. Now, to a Jew in this time period, to his followers, to his disciples who are listening to what he's having to say, all of a sudden goes, what is he claiming here? They would have had access to the writings of the law of the prophets. 700 years before, Isaiah, we know this, writes this stuff down, records some of this stuff down, and they would have anchored into this waiting for the way. And Jews talked about what is the way to God? What is the way to God? How do we get to God? What is the way? Jesus says, I am the way. And it's a reference back to multiple different scriptures by multiple different authors over a span over a thousand plus years. So you just got to understand, people have been reading literature from people who have written stuff that's been passed down for hundreds of years, multiple different authors in different time periods, and they're connecting these dots. That's so important to understand how they're seeing the fulfillment of the law and the prophets in him in this very moment. He is simply claiming, I'm the fulfillment of all those prophecies, which we talked about last week. And here's one of the the statements that a man named Isaiah predicts. Here's what Isaiah predicts or prophesies or says or speaks of. Here's what he says, and this is what Jesus is alluding to. Isaiah 35 reads this, and a highway will be there, and it'll be called the way of holiness. It'll be for these, for those who walk on that way, capital W. How many of you, when you're writing sentences, go, oh, capital W for way? It's a reference to a person. You walk on that way. Notice the road. It's not walk in the way. It says walk on the way. And it says the unclean will not journey on it. So this road is not for everyone. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any uh, ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. The Hebrew word for highway indicates 
literally exactly where it sounds like. If you wonder where highway comes from, it's from a high way, a road that's above. It's a high way. Think about that the next time you're on a highway. This is about a high way. You ever wonder why you call it highway when it's on the ground? Now you know. Jesus speaks to this highway. Isaiah talks about it. And notice the highway isn't for everyone. Let me say it to you this way. It's a toll booth. It says only the redeemed get access on this highway. Those whose price has been paid for. To redeem means to purchase back. And Jesus is saying, I'm the redeemer. I'm the one who pays your toll. And you don't get on the highway unless you accept my payment for you. Jesus is making a powerful claim with this. Imagine, just for a second, you ever had somebody, you ever asked for directions? Before GPS, so we're talking to all the adults uh, over 40 probably, okay? But there was a day where we used to have to walk into a convenience store. So all my young people, this is just how things used to be. You walk into a convenience store, you get lost. Hey, where do I go? Where, have you seen the park? Have you seen the restaurant? Oh, yeah, you go up the street. Then you take a left, go north, which people don't know what north and south and east. And then you head east. Then you take west and go southwest. You know what I'm talking about? And then you're having uh, okay. And then you're just, you felt so dumb. You never even told the person, I have no idea what you just said. Sure, thanks. And then you went on to the next convenience store across the street to get more clarity. You know, Everybody remember those days? And, um, and so, but, but that's, that's one way that Jesus could say, but Jesus said this, no, no, no. This is what Jesus was saying when he said, I'm the way. Just come here, I'll take you there. For Thomas, how, how do we get there? Just, I'll grab you, I'll, I'll take you. Just follow my lead. I am the way. It's a powerful statement that Jesus is claiming. Now just think about the man. Think about the person sitting next to you claiming to be the way to heaven. Chances are you would question that person. I hope you would question that person, which is exactly what Thomas is doing, right? All right, so next line. Jesus makes a massive, another statement. He says, I'm the truth. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is quoted saying this, the truth, the truth, all right? Jesus is quoting the most famous sermons that Jesus ever teaches or preaches, okay? Matthew chapter 5, you can go read about it later, but here's one of the statements that he says, just one of the statements. Jesus says this, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Now, what's he quoting? One of the Ten Commandments, right? You know that. You shouldn't murder. Okay, sounds good. Jesus, we're all in agreement with that one. Sounds good. You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. All in agreement. But then Jesus does something, and I pause there with a the dot, dot, dot on purpose. Then Jesus says, but I, I tell you. And then he goes on to say and talks about hatred in the heart, and you've also committed murder. And then he'll go on to talk about adultery. And then he says, but I tell you. Then he goes on to continue in this statements of repeating back to the law of the prophets, repeating back Old Testament, repeating back commandments. And then he says, but I tell you. Jesus, somehow the man in this very moment is equating himself to the very authority of God's word to which the Jew would have believed. He's equating himself to it. Jesus is making the claim that he is the source of all truth. He's the source of it. I mean, this is a powerful statement that Jesus is trying to make and helping these humans understand, helping these people understand. You think about this like this. Like, think about it this way. How could any human 
declare to be the source of truth. If you, have you ever met a human being who's never told a lie? Exactly. And you never will. The moment a person were to tell you, I've never told a lie, I have embodied truth my entire life, I've never told a lie, you would say, you're a liar. Jesus makes a claim, never told a lie. I embody truth, and I am the source of all truth. Which you would say, well, no human could ever claim such a thing. Which Jesus is saying, exactly. Because I'm not just fully human. I'm also fully God. Right here in front of you. If you've seen him, seen me. Or if you've seen me, you've seen him, right? Powerful claim this man Jesus is making. Write this in your notes, key truth. Believing something doesn't make it true. It's already true. According to Jesus, he's truth. So you believing in him not doesn't change the fact that he is truth. The only difference is that you just choose to believe him or not. So if it's true, then it's true, and it's true whether God you believe it or not. Now it's just a choice you make to whether you believe what he said is actually true. Truth is not based upon your opinion, and truth is not based on what you think to be true. According to Jesus, he is truth. I was in a conversation with my neighbor the other day, and we were chatting about the Bible for just a little bit, and we were chatting. It was a good conversation. It was a great conversation. It lasted about 45 minutes, really good conversation. We didn't mean for it to go there, but it just started kind of going there. And then there was a statement made about, you know, what I see it, Here's what I believe. And we were talking about Scripture a little bit, and then I said, well, that's interesting, because when I see it, here's what I think. And then the peel back is, well, then what's true? In fact, just two weeks ago, I had a niece call me up on the phone. She was doing a, a paper for school, and uh, she was writing on a particular passage of Scripture. And so I start to unpack it to her, and, and she goes to a Catholic school, and so I was like, you know, uh, so I, I'm going to give you from my perspective, you know, more of an evangelical Protestant perspective, but, but let's just talk about it. So we start unpacking this, and I said, but, you know, for a Protestant, they would see it this way. Maybe for a Catholic, they would see it this way. And then she, at the age of 17, goes, great question. She's like, then how do we know what's true? If it's your opinion versus my opinion, where's truth at? It's like, great question. Good news, I have the answer. Jesus. That's truth right there. And everything else could be wrong, but that's truth. So we just study him the best we possibly can. Man, it's just a powerful statement when he says he's truth. Last statement he says. He says he's the life. <laughs> he is the life. When Jesus makes the statement that he is the life, Jesus is claiming, right, he's asking for this invitation of confidence, but he's claiming that he brings eternal life. You say, well, how do I know that? Just a couple of verses down. John writes this. John 14, 9, it says this, uh, or 19, it says, before long, this is Jesus' statements, okay? Jesus says, the world will not see me anymore. But look what he says next. I mean, it's a powerful statement, but you will see me. And then he says, because I live, you also will live speaking to future because i live you also will live jesus is claiming 
to be the source of all life. Just imagine if you're a lady. I just want to talk to the ladies, all the wives in the room. Imagine your husband rolls over one morning and says, the reason you have life, you know, and the reason why there's plants and animals and the sun comes out every day, and the reason why there's a moon perfectly placed exactly where it's placed, and the reason why the earth's distance from the sun is exactly where it is, is because of me. So you laugh and you chuckle, and you just sounded like a Pharisee and a scribe in this time. It's exactly what they would have done. And that feeling you just had is why he was put on the cross. It's that chuckle. It's that laugh. You're kidding me. What a lunatic. What a crazy person. But Jesus makes the claims nonetheless. Now here's where it gets really, really interesting. Jesus makes the claim to have the authority over life and death. He makes the claim in this statement, because I live, you also will live. I have the authority of life over life, and I have the authority over death. It's one thing to say I have the authority over life. It's all that is I have the authority over death. I can overcome death as well. Powerful statement. But Jesus goes a step further, and this is only why Christians believe what they believe. We don't believe what we believe because the Bible says so. It's way bigger than that. Here's what Jesus does. It's one thing to say it. It's a whole nother thing to pull it off. So another guy who would write this down for us in history and help us to understand what happened in Jesus' life, Luke 9, verse 22. Jesus makes the statement, the son of man, which is his human side, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed. A prediction of his own death, which, by the way, maybe for some of us, maybe somehow you could pull that off. I'm going to predict my own death and then go put myself in prison. Okay, maybe you, you somehow predicted that was going to happen. Could be easy. But then he predicts something incredibly important. He says, and on the third day, I'll be raised to life. He makes the prediction put himself on the cross to die, and then he predicts his own resurrection. Then, after countless different authors and countless different eyewitnesses, Jesus does the imaginable, according to many different writings and many different stuff, and I could unpack all the different writings, all through Scripture, all that shows this, all that revealed this, that many people would show up and say, Jesus pulled it off. He pulls it off. He dies and he overcomes the grave, and he rises from the dead. Christians don't place their confidence in Christ because of what the Bible says. Christians place their confidence in Christ because of what he said and what he did. And that changes everything. You think about what occurred on that very moment when he resurrects from the grave. It changes everything. I've heard it said this way, and I think it's a great statement, was listening to a um, a little breakout kind of sermon thing that they have at Dallas Theological Seminary and this guy came to speak at the chapel services and as a student watched these chapel services and he made this statement and there's this powerful statement that's resonated with me he said you know he's talking in this kind of idea that why Christians believe what they believe and it's, it's a, I've taken it I've stolen it I'm like that's such a good powerful statement it's so true but just that whenever a guy predicts his own death and resurrection and pulls it off, you should pay attention to whatever that guy has to say. 
So let me tell you now, if you ever meet somebody who predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off, you should pay attention to what he has to say. That'll never happen. Because it's already been done, and only by one. Jesus is that individual. So whenever a guy predicts his own death and predicts his own resurrection and pulls it off, Christians just pay attention to whatever that guy has to say. That's what it means to follow Christ. I want to invite you to behold this. We've been anchored into this word behold. Don't miss this. The way, the truth, and the life is Jesus. And I want to invite you not to, to miss that. And I was thinking about, man, I could tell the Christmas story, right? We could talk about baby Jesus, sweet baby Jesus, right? We could talk about baby Jesus. That's a movie, I know. The baby Jesus, right? You could talk about this moment and, and say, oh, it's the Christmas story and Mary and how it all came about and then the animals and all so good, right? You, you, could, you could see all that, but here's my concern. Here was my heart for you, heart for our church. is simply this. You'd miss it. Listen to me. Listen to me. This is so important. This is why you've come. You'd miss it. We could talk about the birth and you miss it. The way, the truth, and the life is born. The only highway. Jesus would say, you have to come through me and no one else. I'm the only one who can pay the debt for you to have holiness so you can enter heaven. He would say, the source of truth is all me. I've never told a lie. You can trust every word that I have to say. I want to invite you to understand, to behold that. Amen. This is so important. He is the life, eternal life. The night before he was arrested, uh, Jesus invited his followers to share in a meal. We call it communion today. We, it's just the language that we would use, but he invites them to share in a meal of bread and wine. And part of that, he would say, and we've been partaking in communion each of these weeks, and we will today, and we will also in Christmas Eve. But when he does that, he's making a statement. He talks about doing this in remembrance of me. So I thought this was a fitting talk because I just thought, if Jesus were to say, this is how I want to be remembered, I don't think he'd want to be remembered just as the birth. Just remember my birth. It's way bigger than that way more important than celebrating his birthday. He would say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one goes to where I am going except through me. And so I just hope that whenever you see this Jesus that we talk about around Christmas time, you would see him as the way, truth, and the life. You see him like that and everything changes in your life. Everything. I want to invite you to consider this. We're going to take in communion in just a minute. If Jesus rose from the dead, then what Jesus said can be trusted. And I just read that. Think about it for just a minute because like, it felt so important. Like the Holy Spirit just put this heavy on you. I want you to consider this. Just consider it. If Jesus rose from the dead, three days after being killed, then everything he says can be trusted. Everything he says can be trusted. Now, if he didn't, then we're done here. But if he did, game changer. Your whole life will change when you begin to understand that Jesus pulled off 
greatest story ever told, greatest truth ever told. The truth left heaven, came down, died, and rose again, and overcame death so that you could have eternal life. May you believe that, everything changes. So as we partake in communion, one of the writers of Corinthians says, examine yourself before taking it. I want to invite you to examine this question. Do you have confidence that Jesus is who he said he was and did what he said he would do? I want to invite you to consider that. And so we're going to sing a song. The band's going to sing a song. And, and as they do, you can just stay seated. We're going to pass some elements in just a minute. And I'll come back up and I'll lead us in a time of But we just wanted to create a spot here for just a minute. I just want you to look at the question and ask yourself, really have confidence that Jesus is who he said he was and that he actually did what he said he would do. That he would go to prepare a place and he'll come back and take those who are on his highway with him. You believe that? Just examine that question. The ushers will pass the elements and I'll come back up in a second and lead us in time of
So today, uh, it's just really about remembering what Christ has done. That's what this Christmas season is right. This is all about, to remember who he is, not just that he came. And I think this is what's so impressed upon my heart today to share with our church body and those watching. Not that he was just born, but that he rose from the dead. It's one thing to be born. It's a whole nother thing to overcome the grave, to overcome death. And according to Jesus, the reason he did that was so that you and I could have hope in eternal life, that this is not all there is, that he's gone to prepare a place, and that he will return. And then he shows it and proves it by who he is. And this is what I want you to think about as we partake in communion. He said, when you take of the bread, you, you do this for all throughout time, and you take of the cup. When, you, when we do that, I want you to do this to remember me. Not so that he could be more famous. He has all the fame and the glory in his hands. I mean, he's God in flesh. Not just so that, not you could just know about him, but that you could come to know him that you could walk on his highway, that you could come to know him, that you could go and be with him where he has gone to prepare a place for you. And here's the biggest part. If Jesus is who he said he is, and he did what he said he would do, then he can be fully trusted. So maybe today as you partake in communion, I want to invite you to consider something because we're all different backgrounds and different parts of life. Maybe today as you partake in communion, you need to anchor into this. I'll never leave you. That's what Jesus said. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Do you trust him? Jesus said, don't worry about your finances. I take care of those who love me. I take care of those who put me first. Do you trust him? Jesus said, I love you. Just like you are. Jesus said, don't seek people's approval, seek my approval, and that alone will sustain you. Jesus said he's the author of life. He's overcome death. Jesus said he has a great plan for your life, greater than ever you could possibly imagine or think of. Jesus said, put, the, put your marriage, put your life at the center of me, and I will provide all of your greatest desires. Many plans are the man's heart, but I guide every single step of the way. Jesus said, whenever you look around the earth and you see things are collapsing or crumbling around you, have hope that I've overcome the world. Don't lose hope. When you have questions about life, just know that Jesus would say, I'm aware of everything that's occurred in your life, and I have the power to help you overcome all of those temptations and desires. I just invite you to investigate this truth. If you're considering it, just investigate it. So today as we partake in communion, I invite you to examine your own life for just a minute. If you would, just bow your head, close your eyes. Lord, today we come examining our own life before you, fascinated that you would leave heaven and you would come to earth, but then also that you would reveal to us that you're the way, the truth, and the life. And so today, God, we take of the bread, remembering how it was broken. And according to you, the reason you did that, 
the reason why you would pay the punishment for our sins was because you love us. And that is true. Even if we don't believe it, it's still true. So today we take of the bread. I invite you to take of the bread at this time. And we do so remembering that by your stripes we are healed. That whenever you died on the cross, that you healed us of our brokenness. That we would obtain perfection in our new resurrected bodies. And Jesus, today as we take of the cup, we remember the blood that was poured out for our sins, the payment that we would be called the redeemed, that we are the redeemed, that you would bring back your sons and daughters who were lost. And today, Father, we put our hope and our trust fully in your word. And so today I invite you to take of the cup. I invite you to stand to your feet. We're going to close out in just a minute. Before we do, I invite you just to declare with us the truth of who God is. So today, Father, we sing. We glorify your name. We're thankful for everything that you've ever done. And today, I encourage you, right where you are, today to make Jesus the king of your life, to investigate him, get to know him, and the truth of who he is. He's a good father, and he loves you, and he cares for you, and he has a plan for you beyond your comprehension. And he invites you into relationship to come to know him. Jesus, we put our hope, our faith, and our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.